Now let's turn in our Bibles again to the Gospel according to John, where we've been reading uh, some mornings and some evenings in this series uh, which has been held together by the fact, uh, surprising fact, that almost everything that happens in John's gospel is timed. It's a very strange phenomenon. And last Lord's Day, Easter Sunday morning, we were in Easter Sunday morning, and today um, we are times relative, so we're in Easter Sunday evening and reading in John chapter 20, and from verse 19. John 20 from verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Some of the ministers in the church were talking after the service last Sunday, and I think we agreed it might be possible for a young man ordained to the gospel ministry to go to a congregation, perhaps at the age of 24 or 25, and announce as the text of his first sermon, John chapter 1, verse 1, stay in that congregation for the next 50 years, and then announce as the closing text of his ministry the last words of John's gospel. It was uh, Chrysostom, the early Christian father. Some of you know his name because of Rachmaninoff's 
liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, who said, John's gospel is like a pool of water in which a lamb can wade, but an elephant could swim. And we're coming now, actually, to what is the climax of the gospel. It's not the conclusion of the gospel, but it is the climax of the gospel because it's the place where John explains why he wrote the gospel. And you see that in verses 30 and 31. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, but these are written so that you may believe. And the story has moved on now to Easter Sunday evening. Jesus has appeared, beginning of the chapter, to Mary Magdalene. We know from Luke's gospel that he also appeared to Simon Peter, and that he then appeared to two people on the road to Emmaus. And they rushed back to tell the disciples that Jesus was risen, and it must have been uh, something of a downer for them, because when they burst into the room, uh, the disciples who were there already knew Jesus had risen because He had appeared, they said, to Simon. And this passage now describes what happens next. There they are, fearful of the possibility of persecution, and the Lord Jesus appears in the room. Now, there's a very intriguing question here in John's gospel, and it's this. Why is it that this passage, especially about Thomas, appears in John's gospel, but in none of the other gospels? And why does it lead John to say in verse 30, now Jesus did, notice his language, many other signs, many other signs. That word other is the clue to the previous verses. The fact that John refers to other signs means that in John's mind, what he has just described is a series of signs. And I think it's helpful for us if we understand that connection. Jesus did many other signs in addition to these signs that I've just described, because this helps us to untangle what's going on in the incidents that are described here. What is a sign in John's gospel? A sign in John's gospel is, an, is a wonderful action of Jesus that Jesus explains with words, or a wonderful action of Jesus that gives an illustration of the words he has just spoken. So, always in John's gospel, a sign involves an action of Jesus and words of Jesus, or words of Jesus and an action of Jesus. And I want you to notice that there are three of them in this passage. The first in verses 19 and 20 is the benediction that Jesus pronounces. And uh, you'll notice, interestingly, he does it twice. Uh, ministers who pronounce the benediction twice, as I remember one of my Old Testament professors did, are showing the first signs of amnesia, aren't they? 
But you notice Jesus pronounces His benediction twice in verse 19 and 21, so this is not a casual comment. Uh, This is not uh, shalom. This is not salam. This is a very non-casual comment, and it's an expression of what Jesus has just done. A very interesting pattern in these closing chapters of John's gospel from chapter 17 through to chapter 20 uh, that, in a sense, shows the fulfillment of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest went through an elaborate consecration of himself to God. And Jesus describes how He does that in chapter 17. It's sometimes called His high priestly prayer. But in it, He's consecrating Himself and His immediate family and all of God's people to the Lord, which was what the high priest did as he moved towards the Day of Atonement. And then the high priest made a sacrifice. And Jesus' sacrifice has been described in chapters 18 and 19. And then, as you know, because the high priest was called, as we're told, to make offerings to the Lord and then to bless the people. The high priest came out from the holiest place of all, came through the temple and raised his hands and pronounced the Aaronic benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. So those are Jesus' words. And the way in which He demonstrates to the disciples that He has fulfilled the high priestly ministry is by showing them the signs of His own sacrifice. And you see that by doing that, he's making a connection to them between the peace that he pronounces on them and the sacrifice that he has made for them. It was actually a connection that was there in the, in the greatest Old Testament prophecy about the sufferings of the Lord Jesus. He would be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, Isaiah 53, 5 and the chastisement that would bring His people peace would fall upon Him, and with His stripes they would be healed. And so, in a wonderful way, Jesus is, as it were, enacting a sign of the gospel to them. His very presence, what He says, peace, what He does, shows them His hands and His feet, is really a way of fulfilling this great picture of the old covenant, that one day a great priest would come who would bring the peace that was really needed, peace with God. Of course, that's not only true of the clearest prophecy of Jesus in the Old Testament, it's clear in the clearest exposition of the gospel in the New Testament, Romans, that David has been leading us through. What is the problem? Romans chapter 3, the way of peace we have not known. What is the solution? God set forth Jesus as His mercy seat 
to bring the forgiveness of sins. How does that happen? Romans 4, 24 and 25. He was put to death for our trespasses, and now he has been raised for our justification. And what's the result of that? Therefore, being justified by faith. Romans 5, 1. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Every sign in John's gospel is an enacted drama of the gospel. And here is another sign as Jesus pronounces the benediction. But there's not only the benediction that Jesus pronounces in verses 19 and 20. You'll notice that the narrative moves on to the commission the apostles receive in verses 21 to 23. And just remember uh, in, in verse 30, John had said, implied, what I've just written down is a, is a description of signs Jesus gave. And you see the same pattern here. There are the words of Jesus, and there's the action of Jesus, and the action of Jesus gives us insight into the meaning of the words, and the words give us insight into the meaning of the action. So, what is the action here? Well, it's this. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So, this is the commissioning of the apostles. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is the commissioning of the apostles to go into the world and to express the gospel of the forgiveness of sins. You see what Jesus is saying? You have received my peace. Now go and bring that peace to others. Bring the word of pardon and forgiveness. Some of us, that may be a bit of a problem. How can a man forgive sins? Or is this something that's passed on? You know, it's everyone in the apostolic tradition of the authority to forgive sins. How did the apostles forgive sins? That's what the text says. Go and forgive sins. And if you forgive their sins, they're forgiven. If you don't forgive their sins, they're not forgiven. Well, in a sense, the passage explains it to us, doesn't it? Um, this is one of those places where it's not a good idea in our pastoral groups to go round the group and say, what do you think Jesus meant? This is a place where it's so important to say, does the Bible tell us what Jesus meant? And actually, this passage gives us a huge hint as to what Jesus meant. Because there's not only the words, but there's the action. He breathes on them, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, where else in the New Testament do you find Jesus breathing on the apostles, them receiving the Holy Spirit, and then others receiving the forgiveness of sins? 
Well, it's obvious, isn't it? It's the day of Pentecost. This is like a, this is like a foretaste of the day of Pentecost. This is, this is, a, this is like a, a secret version of the day of Pentecost. Because on the day of Pentecost, Jesus pours out His Spirit on His people, and what happens as a result? As Peter preaches the gospel in Acts chapter 2, the, the listeners are so convicted of their sin, they cry out, what are we going to do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. So how are the apostles to forgive sins? Not because they have a pocket full of forgiveness, but because Peter, especially on the day of Pentecost, had the keys in his pocket, and he took them out. And by his preaching, he flung open the door so that men and women, young people, boys and girls, could have, after Jesus' resurrection, the same sense of shalom, the same peace with God, the same forgiveness of sins that the apostles had experienced in the upper room. So, there's one sign, which is the sign of Christ's work and the forgiveness of sins. There's another sign, which is the sign of the apostles' commission to preach the gospel and forgive sins. So, there is a benediction, there's a commission And yes, uh, lest we forget him, there's also a confession, confession of Thomas. I sometimes think there are three apostles who always go by two names, Judas Iscariot, Simon Peter, and Doubting Thomas. And I think, you know, we can be a bit hard on him. He was certainly a glass-half-empty kind of fellow. Remember when Jesus earlier on in the gospel said, you know, we're going off to Jerusalem, and Thomas says, well, might as well go and die with him. (laughs) It's not exactly you're up and at them, apostle. Um, Maybe he had some Scottish blood in him, do you think? Uh, But, you know, we can make him out to be a a terrible pragmatist and a rationalist. So, what would you have said? What would you have said? Me? Moi? I think I'm with Thomas. Because Thomas is saying, you've said this in a completely different context. Why should I believe it just because you've told me? Why should I believe it? Because you've said it. And actually, that's the point of what happens next. I mean, this must have been the spookiest moment in Thomas's life. A week later, he turns up for the evening service, and uh, suddenly Jesus turns up. I mean, that's one thing. That must have blown his mind. Um, I'm kind of impressed after what he had said he turned up. But then… Jesus makes it clear, hey, Thomas, I was not only here last Sunday night, I was in the room. 
And I was in the room when you turned up and said, unless I can put my hand into the nail prints and my hand into his side, I'm not going to believe. So, Thomas, think Thomas did this? Moi, I wouldn't have done it for a million pounds. No, he doesn't do it. He just is awestruck. And he, he brings, you see, he brings the gospel to a climax. It began, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all Thomas can do is to say, Jesus, you are my Lord and my God. And then notice what Jesus says, which is actually really important. I mean, it's tremendously important how Jesus responds. He says, Thomas, you have believed because you saw. Now, that was true of the other fellows as well. So, let's not demean Thomas and say, well, he needed to see. The others had believed because they had seen. So, you see the point Jesus is making? Thomas, you believe because you saw. Blessed are those who believe without seeing. What's the connection here? It's this. I think in Thomas's mind, why should I believe you, Peter, James, Andrew, John? Why should I believe your testimony? And you see Jesus' appearance to him is what saying what? Thomas, you could have believed their testimony. You could believe not because you saw, but because their testimony was absolutely reliable, and you could have trusted that testimony. And you see, that's what explains why John introduces these words in verses 30 and 31 here, and not at the end of the gospel because he's actually turning to us as readers of the gospel and saying to us, and you who have not seen Jesus, you could believe too because of our testimony. You know, it's a very interesting thing. I referred to it in passing last Sunday morning, I think, but it's, it's been going on in my head since I said it. I mean, something one says in one's sermons ought to reverberate in one's own life. I said, this is the only place in John's gospel where John actually turns to the reader and says, now I'm talking to you. It's the only place in John's gospel this happens. It's not, only, it's not the only you in John's gospel. It's the only place in John's gospel where the you is you if you're a reader of the gospel. And it's the only place in the Gospels where that's true. There's no other place in the Gospels where a Gospel writer turns to the reader and says, no, I'm talking to you. My friends, it's not the only place in the Gospel of John or the Gospels where this happens. It's the only place where it happens in the New Testament. The you in Paul's letters, not you, it's them. The you in Colossians is not you, it's the Colossians. Yes, it has an application to you, but the you is not you. It's them ones, not yous. Okay? Now listen, this is really the only place in the whole Bible 
where the Bible turns to you, the reader, and says, now I'm speaking to you. Those of you who love Rembrandt, I should have asked Robbie McMillan before the service, great painting of Rembrandt of the storm on the Sea of Galilee, you know it, that was stolen. I should have asked Robbie if he knew where it was. If he knew where it was, we could clear the building deck pretty quickly. And it's one of those paintings, I think, that Rembrandt painted himself into. And if you know it, you know the ship is about to capsize, and there's li- all the other apostles are running around the place, and they're looking to Jesus, and they're trying to get the boat still. And there's this little fellow at the back, and he's got his, his, hand is, his right hand's on the rigging, and his other hand's on his cap. And he's the only person in the picture who's actually looking at you. And they say it's probably Rembrandt's own face. And it's there maybe to say, so what would you be doing if you were in my situation? I mean, it's like a gospel sermon. The storm and the sea, so? Oh, they should have had faith, stupid disciples. And there's little Rembrandt with his face looking out to you as you, if you could admire. Somebody somewhere is able to admire it and say, what about you? Do you have faith? And this is what John is doing here. It's not altogether clear whether he's saying, I've written this gospel so that you will come to faith for the first time. Or I've written this gospel so that you will keep on believing in this great Savior. But in a sense, when he's saying, I'm talking to you, it doesn't really matter, does it? Because he's really saying, after 20 chapters in which I've shown you the Lord of glory. Do you believe in Him? Do you trust Him? It's as though this man is saying what preachers don't usually say with your name on it. Sinclair Ferguson, I am talking to you, that you may believe in Jesus Christ and enjoy eternal life. Well, do you? Maybe other people think you do, but you know, even as that question is asked, you know you don't. So listen to John, and listen to Christ as He speaks through John saying, I really am talking to you. I know everything about you as I knew even the words that came out of doubting Thomas's mouth. I know it all, but I'm calling you to trust me. And you don't need to see me in order to trust me, because the testimony that my servants have given is utterly reliable. Millions upon millions have found it to be so and you will too. It's the, it's the simplest Christian question you could ever be asked. Do you trust in Jesus? Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You today for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and for this amazing record of all that He was and all that He did and 
for the way in which Your Word speaks to us. And we pray as You speak to us by the voice of Jesus Christ that we may be able to hear that voice. We may be conscious that this is not a, a human voice that, that we are hearing, although there, there has been a human voice these last minutes. But there's a deeper voice of someone who knows us intimately well and who's calling us to trust in Him. And so we want to do that. Lord Jesus, thank You for the wounds with which You bore our guilt and our shame. Thank You for Your risen power and for Your word of peace. And thank You for the forgiveness of sins that we discover to our joy when we trust in You. Hear us and help us, we pray in Your name. Amen.